Hey, legends, you know, none of our interviews or episodes ever date, ever. They are all timeless and ready for you for when you're ready to listen. Download the lot and rip in. Combat and confrontation was probably unavoidable, even from a young age, a successful high school and collegiate wrestler. He also qualified as a finalist in the Olympic trials, a black belt in judo as well. However, like many at the time, the lure of this new beast, mixed martial arts and UFC, proved impossible to ignore. Frankie Trigg, what's your first memory of seeing or learning about this new craze that was... MMA slash UFC. Probably in 1993, I had Dave Severin as my college coach at the time. Yeah. Um, he took up talking about his brother was doing this thing and he's fighting these guys and beating these guys up and making like $50,000 in a night. And it was like the most a wrestler had ever made. And we're all like, wow, this is amazing. What is this thing? And then we kind of watched a little bit of it. And obviously the first fight was in Buffalo. Um, we got to see bits and pieces of that, but we didn't get to see it live we didn't have pay-per-view back we're in college we didn't have pay back then we like, we didn't know how to get it what to do with it or yeah. and that kind of stuff like it is today uh we had to wait for it to come out on uh maybe blockbuster maybe so i'm not sure how we got a hold of it we got a hold of it watched it one day as a team and it was like wow so it's pretty cool and didn't understand this little skinny guy with his weird ass white pajama pajamas was wearing what he was doing and <laughs> you know how was he how was he making guys tap like whatever i'd, I'd beat him up he's on by pounds i'll kick the crap out of him you know that was our mindset back then and that's how I got the introduction, uh, but I was continuing to wrestle and finished junior college in Phoenix, went to uh, University of Oklahoma to finish up uh, my degree. Uh, and while we were there, I met up with Patrick Burris, who yeah. is a, an Olympian and a world team member and and was a great coach and co- started, brought me into judo and a little bit, little bit of judo. And he got me started fighting down in Texas because it was the only place that was actually kind of legal in our area at that time. It was an era we look back on so fondly, just after the turn of the century, globally, the buzz and the month-to-month growth of UFC was insane. Well, you know, UFC 45 was my first one in. That's where I fought Matt Hughes the first time. There was eight fights a year. That's all the UFC had. Eight fights, mm. eight fights a year total, right? So if you weren't going to be one of two things, a champ or a heel, that was it. There's only yeah. guys that got fights because you had to talk your way into getting more than one fight a year. Otherwise, you're going to be able to survive. Mm. And the pay was, compared to today's money, the pay was horrific. Like I, you know, cause now I ref, I see the paychecks that these guys get. And I've been on, I, I ref the fight night in, in, uh, in like Fresno or something in California. And it was Brian, uh, Brian Ortega and Cub Swanson was the main event. That, yeah. It wasn't one of the fights I had, but that was the main event. And I looked at one of the, I looked at the checks cause you see the checks cause they go to the head, you know, the lead inspector has the checks cause he has to hand them out in California. And I was like, if I was fighting on this card, the most money I ever made, I would have been off the prelims. Like I wouldn't even been off the early prelims. You're talking, this is like six or seven years ago. So now flash forward to now, like the way they're making now, like, man, I'm, I'm on, you know, I'm on fight pass though. You know, it's like the, for the, for the pay, yeah. right. For the amount of money we're making. So the money's completely changed. It's totally different. The mindsets have changed. The game has changed, but yeah, man, it's like that. My introduction to it was extremely like 
my Kung Fu is better than your karate, which is better than your judo, which is better than your boxing, which is better than your kickboxing. Like it was just this whole game of what, you know, who's better now. It's like, there's kids I ref at the amateur level. They've done nothing else but mixed martial arts their entire lives. They've done the differences. They've done pure boxing, pure wrestling, pure jujitsu. You know, they're doing road work. They're doing pure things. But it's also with the mindset of eventually I'm going to be a professional in mixed martial arts. That's their whole mindset. It was a wonderful era. I look back and I say, you guys were legitimate, tough guys. Nowadays, they're good athletes. They're great athletes, actually. But your era... Genuine tough guys, and that was the appeal of it. Is that a fair call? Yeah, yeah. I was actually thinking about this the other day. Somebody was uh, on the TV show we're filming. Uh, somebody was asking me, like, you know, what's the difference between now and then? I go, well, then we would have done it for free because yeah. basically we're doing it for free. We would have fought just to fight anyway because we we were legit. We that's what we wanted to do. Mm. Like all the wrestlers, like on uh, you go to any campus from eighty five to about two thousand three, any campus that had a wrestling team, whether the team was great or not, they basically run the campus. They run the sports programs because they're all really tough guys. Mm. This is just what we are. This is how we're bred, how we're, how we're thought about it, how we're brought to believe it, that we got to go out there and do one-on-one combat every Tuesday, every Thursday, every weekend. This is what we have to do to prove that we're the best guy in the area, in mm. the room, in the, you know, every day there's battles in the room. So we were real legit tough guys. Now guys are doing it because it's a legit sport. Yeah. It's a real sport. You, you know, you got retirement packages, you've got um, um, health insurance, you've got coaches that – you know, uh, the Diaz brothers, you know, touch butt coaches, but you've got all these different coaches now that are helping you out and making you better. Like it's a real thing now. It's a real sport. We were still in the process. Like my, we're the second generation. The first gen obviously was Gracie and, and, and boss Rutten and Severin and yep. those guys, that was like, they, that was your first gen. And it kind of morphed a little bit with Randleman and, and Coleman kind of got at the end of the first, the beginning of the second. And then the second is Hughes, Trigg, GSP, uh, Couture, yeah. um, uh, Ortiz, uh, L- Liddell, like that's the second gen. So that's, mm. these are the guys that kind of got the sport to where you guys are paying attention to it now. And then now it's all taken over. Now, you know, now you got, you know, these, these new guys, you know, with obviously with Conor McGregor being the biggest name still, mm. even though he just took that loss, the biggest name, honestly, four years ago, if I wasn't refing a fight night, I wasn't watching a fight night. Yeah. I honestly wasn't like there's just, it just was, it was the, it was the new, it was the, it was the, the commercial for the pay-per-view that was coming up in a couple of weeks. That's all it really was. Mm-hmm. And they basically was pitching the, pitching the pay-per-view the whole time. And the fights weren't really that good. The match really wasn't really that good. Now you're watching fight nights because one of those guys is maybe one fight or two fights away from being in the championship fight. But also sometimes the fight nights are better than the pay-per-view. Yeah. And you're like, I'm paying $69 to watch this stupid thing. That better be great. It's not. Like I'm getting this free, this freebie, at least for here in the States. Yeah. I'm in this freebie on 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 uh, uh, ESPN Plus. They've already bought the app. You're like, dude, this fight is great. Like, this is this is an amazing card. Like, I, like every Saturday night, we're watching the fights now because the game has changed. It has evolved. And, and anybody say like, how would GSP do, or how would Couture do, or how would Ortiz do in their primes against these guys? These certain weight classes. All of us, 100 percent across the board, we got our asses kicked. Period. There is no question about it. The game has evolved. Like every game has evolved so much, we could not keep up. Our game in that time is a completely different game. So also the same argument, Muhammad Ali versus versus Mike Tyson is prime. Muhammad Ali versus Klitschko in his prime. Muhammad Ali versus Tyson Fury in his prime. Who wins? These guys win. If they're in the next era, Muhammad Ali was the best in that era because of the style, what everybody did. He didn't start counting sit-ups till the pain started. Yeah. He was the first one to do that. Then everybody after him did that, did that better. You know, it's just it's just how it's how sports go. We can never catch up. We couldn't keep with those guys. Now it's so much better than we are. 
all the way around. They're better, better weight cutting, better eating, better sleeping, better. They have the whole thing figured out that we didn't even understand. We were trying to figure out the map. And now, they, now they're reading our map. You know, it's like, how can you beat that? You can't. You mentioned Texas earlier. That was your debut. Old school tournament fighting, three fights in the one night. Late 97, I think it was. What do you recall of that night? Arguing with the promoter, Steve Nelson, because he, I didn't realize we couldn't wear shoes. And so I was a wrestler and I always wanted to have my shoes on because yeah. I'd be faster, be quicker and all this other stuff. I was like, no, I mean, these rules, you're not allowed to wear your shoes, you take your shoes off. And literally walking in, they're like, no, shoes off, shoes off. And I'm like having an argument. Like, I've already walked to the cage and on the apron or, or the, the ring, I'm on the apron getting ready to get into the ring because no cages then, it was boxing rings. Yeah. I was going to walk in, like, no, you take your shoes off. Like, what are you talking about? Like, no one has mentioned this to me at all. I've never heard this before. Like, there was no inspector watching you wrap your hands. Wow. There was no. Like there was no uh, no one watching you putting anything on your on your uh, uh, on your wraps or playing with the gloves or yeah. doing something like that. But for that fight, uh, as I recall now, excuse me, we didn't we couldn't wear gloves. You couldn't even punch. You had an open hand slap. It's Pankers style. So you couldn't yeah. even punch. You couldn't punch a guy. You had an open hand slap, but you could knee kick him in the head, but you couldn't punch him in the head, which to me is really strange. But then I remember sitting there like, "What are you talking about? We can't wear shoes." Like. No gloves and no shoes. Like this is just this. This is what kind of what kind of you know uh, promotion is this? It's a it's a joke. And then I went in and ended up winning the three the three fights in one night and got paid. And if I had lost any one of those fights, I would have made any money. Mm. No pay. You have to win to get paid. Your early career, Pride Shooter, WFA, WEF. You build a record of ten and one, and then you debuted on the big show. And I think this is a massive compliment. Your first fight in the UFC was for the welterweight title. You'd forged such a reputation on the independent circuit, for lack of better terms. What do you remember about your night against Matt Hughes? Well, you got to remember, everything was independent then. There was no real circuit then. Mm. Like I said, the UFC was only doing eight fights. Like, what, what were they really doing? They were just the American-based promotion, and they weren't even that big. Pride was way bigger. Shuto, yeah. Shuto was way bigger. And that was in Japan. They were way bigger. You know, like the first time I fought in Pride, uh, Pride 8 against Fabio de Iha. There was 35,000 fans in the seats. It wasn't even a full show. You know, their, their, first, their first night, I think it was Takata versus uh, um, Hickson, and they had like 95,000 fans. Like it, was, it was incredible. Like you're, like The UFC was, was basically an independent network, but it was the American network. Yeah. As an American, you want to fight for the American network, and you could see, you could see them dragging it. Well, let, let's be honest. You could see Dana White dragging it on his back, getting into the mainstream, forcing reporters and radio stations and TV stations to cover it. And even when 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 um, uh, the senator in um, Arizona called a human cockfight, I apologize. He just uh, he's American warrior, everybody. He just passed. I forget his name. Excuse me, but he was calling human cockfighting, and he still Dana White was still dragging the sport on his back by himself, making everybody believe in this whole thing. So of course he wanted to fight for the UFC. On the other end of it, Matt Hughes cleaned out the weight class. There's nobody else left. Yeah. He already cleaned it out. So yeah, oh yeah, I had a big enough mouth. I had built up this record. I was 10 and one. I, my only loss was Harato Sakurai. Yeah, I'm this guy, whatever, ha ha, whatever. But the reality of it is, is that Hughes had cleaned out the weight class. There was nobody left for him to fight. They had to do something. Mm. They had to do something. So if you look at, uh, I think it was 41 or 42, after he wins this fight, he comes in and goes, yeah, you know, I really like to fight this guy. He's got a big mouth. And I really like to fight Frank Trigg. And then that was it. He walks off. Like that, that was the end of the interview. 
And they're like, oh, wow, I mentioned my name. I mean, he's going to get, and then my, at the time, Rico Chipperelli, my manager goes, they're going to call us now. They're definitely going to call us now. Because he just mentioned it. Like, the champ mentioned you. They have no choice. They're going to have to call. We're negotiating. You'll be fighting for the UFC. And that was, that was it. And it really was because Matt had done such a great job of being everybody that was yeah. there. Team Militich had cleaned the house. I think at that time they had all, they had those six weight classes or five weight classes. They had all five or something. Yeah. You know, I think they had everything at that point. It was like you you can't argue. So it was like he's the guy. He wanted a guy. They got to bring the guy in. The fight and you know, that was that's how I got in. Like you know, everyone was talking about how great my record was outside and the noise I made in the independent circuit. But the reality of it is that Matt cleaned out the weight class. I just had to be the next guy in line. Now there was nobody else left. From Matt Straighten to GSP along the journey, Josh Koscheck, Matt Sarah, Carlos Condon, Robbie Lawler. Jason Miller and many more. As you look back now, who stands out as an opponent and why? Well, obviously Matt Hughes because everyone talks about the Matt Hughes two fight. That's the reason why I'm in the UFC Hall of Fame. Yep. Um, I you know I come on set and, and I'm in I'm talking to people that are that are grips that are that are cameramen that are electricians that are. You know, they do jujitsu. Hey, you look like, you know, you look like a guy I kind of know. Oh, I yeah, have Frank Trigg. Oh, that, you're Frank, you're that Frank Trigg. Oh, my God, that, you almost had Matt. You're like, that's the only fight they talk about because that's the only fight they kind of remember. So that was obviously the premier one because that's the one I always have to talk about. Yeah. Every interview, every time I'm in it, that's the one. So that's the only one. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm getting these battles on Facebook. Um, uh, you know how politicized America is right now. Yeah. Like, everyone knows. Like, we're, we're idiots. Like, that's just, regardless of what it is, we're just not very smart about politically about how we do things. Like, we're just not. And, and, and the thing is that I have a degree, my degree is in public affairs administration, which is a political degree. Like that's the whole purpose of it. So I get on these, on these forums and I'll, I'll, I'll bait these guys. Like the, this, this one post that went out, um, TOTs is talking about how kids should not wear masks. It's not good for them. Please don't have your mask. He goes, I'm not a doctor, but I'm a guy that's lived, that's lived life. So I know, like, I, I know that you, you kids should wear masks. And I, my first response was, and I'm, I'm trolling everybody on purpose is, is uh i don't know if he was a scientist that was it and i walked away i go back an hour later and i go all i want is proof that masks don't work that's all i'm looking for just give me proof that masks don't work and i'm staying out of it i have not given my opinion i've not stated in any inflammatory statements i have not gone back and i was like well maybe you should put it maybe you should put it and they, and they get like they start going on this rabbit hole with me i'm like look i i that's great. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, and the first thing they bring up is what, man, you got choked up on Matt Hughes too many times. Okay. All right. That's great. But that was 15 years ago. Yeah. So let's talk about the pandemic. This now, Let, let's not talk about that thing, man. You got knocked out too many times. That's great. That was 15 years ago. Let's talk about this thing. Now. And it's like, they keep going on this pattern. So that's the one I always bring up. But for me, one of the toughest fights, the two, the two toughest for me, legit personal from an emotional standpoint and physical standpoint, was Hanato uh, uh, Verissimo Trudeau, yep. BJ Penn's uh, jiu-jitsu instructor. Um, I fought him. It was the first time my son, my eldest son, was watching me fight live. He's next to my dad. I got caught in that triangle right at the end of the first round. I was going out. Like, I was going out. I had nothing left. And somehow, some way, I broke out of that. He let his legs loose, and I had like 10 or 15 sl- seconds left in the round. I kind of came back from it. Then you go back, and you, and you win. Like, yeah, I won. It was great. But then you go back and see the tape. You see how close I was to going to sleep. Like, I was right. The curtains, you know, when, for those that, that, that train and get choked, you understand it's not, oh, I'm going to sleep, I'm going to sleep, I'm going to sleep. It's, I'm caught, I'm caught, I'm, and you're just out. Like, there's, there's nothing, I'm just gone, right? So I was getting, it was right there, getting ready to slap closed. And I'm like, oh, okay, he let, he got, I got out. Whatever happens, I just got tired. I sat up, I punched in, like, whatever I did, I got out of it. And then I came back and got that fight. So that was really hard for me physically and emotionally because my eldest son is watching mm. me. And the toughest fight for me to take, 
from a physical standpoint, is a Robbie Lawler fight. Yeah. Um, I lost my vision in my eye for a while. He knocked me out. He almost, he almost killed me, like le- legit almost died mm. because he split my nose in the middle of the second or the middle or the beginning of the third. He splits my nose open from from front to back. So it's it's split up like rhinoplasty. So it's not cut, you know, it's cut sideways right here. Like he did a razor blade and cut my nose. And so I'm bleeding, like just blood's everywhere. But I'm also breathing through my nose. Because I'm taught, breathe through your mouth, breathe through your nose. So I'm aspirating blood into my lungs as I'm breathing. So you can see me come out first 30, 45 seconds of each round, and I start falling apart. And I come out, I come out, and I fall apart. It's like, well, what's that? Because I can't get any air. I don't have any air because there's nothing, there's no place for the capillaries to get the oxygen exchange in my lungs because they're filled with blood. They're getting filled with blood. So that that was so that's the most physically hardest one for me was the Lawler fight by far. But I don't talk about that much because no one really asked. No one really cares. I was an icon in Hawaii for TJ Thompson as the promoter. Like no one really, no one really cares about that one. They really care about is the Matt Hughes one. Now, of course, it also benefited me Matt getting hit by a train because with his comeback from that, and he posts all the time about this fight. He's always bringing my fight back up and he's always posting it out there. I was like, hey, that's great. Hey, and I'm, you know, hey, man, I hope you're doing well. Hope things are going good. You know, I like all of his videos of him getting stronger, getting better, because it's great to see yeah. an old opponent, a guy that you ultimately, you really, we did not like each other. We really did not like each other to see him come from such a bad accident, be able to come back and, and, and at least be somewhat functional. He's not 100% and never will be, but definitely getting there and getting better every week. You see him post a video working out that, that makes your, that makes your heart happy. Like, you're like, wow, that's great. Like this guy's still around, but he keeps posting our fights. He's talking about our fight. I'm like, that's great. He keeps bringing it up. So it keeps getting pushed back to the top again. You mentioned in that answer, your UFC hall of fame induction because of that fight on a personal level, what does an accolade like that mean to Frank Trigg? Well, you know, it's, I've never been one for accolades. Like all my years uh, competing, all my competitions I did, all my years swimming, I was a competitive swimmer before wrestling, soccer, like everything I competed in. The only trophies I really have are um, my uh, one of my Japan fights, uh, obviously the Hall of Fame fight, the when I got the, the Fight of the Year award from Shuto when I lost to Sakurai, um, a couple of my wrestling tournaments, ones that I had when I was, when I was in high school, and then laying down, I have my National Junior College plaque uh, for being the best wrestler that took second. <laughs> they give they give an award to the best guy that was second. It was weird. And then a couple, my placers, my my small little octagons that USA Wrestling gives you. Um, they've changed now. Um, but, you know, they look they look like this. This is USA Wrestling ones that you get when you place in the top six anywhere. Obviously, the higher up you get, the bigger they get. I never placed in the top, so I didn't get the big ones. That's all the trophies I have. I don't have really have any other trophies. I kind of keep them all. They're all gone. They're all yeah. whether destroyed or with my mom or with my dad or just not. I just don't have them. I'm not a guy that really likes accolades. I just don't like um, um, tooting. We weren't, we weren't, we weren't brought up that way. It always yeah. like, you know, we're brought up more to you're expected to do well. It's not a thing of, oh, hey, look how good I did. You know, if you if you win an Olympic title or a world title or a national title or something that's like one one out of you know only one uh, out of thirteen that year can win it. And you do that, and yeah, then that one's that's mm. the big one. But if you're like otherwise, it's kind of like you, you, you know, you'd be great at that one tournament, but it's not the big one. So we don't really keep that kind of accolade around. So for me, it's it's been pretty cool. I thought, to be quite honest, I thought it would do more for me, being how big the UFC is mm. and what is in and what is going on. I thought it would give me a lot more, open a lot more doors for me. Um, it, it, I thought it would at least open up a door for me to get tickets to fights. I thought at least that would be <laughs> one door that would open up. And and I have to actually call friends and ask them if they got any extras wow. to get to get tickets. That that's that's the one thing. And then in California, also too, now as a referee, it's a little inappropriate for me to call the UFC main office and be like, "Hey, look, you know, can you give me 
tickets. Yeah. I'm a referee. When you come to California, I ref your fights. That's a little inappropriate. So also that being said, I'm jabbing at the UFC a little bit, but the reality of it is it's, it's truly inappropriate for me to even call them. Mm. Even if I had Dana's number to, Hey, look, give me, give me two tickets. That's inappropriate. I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that because I'm an official. I can't, I shouldn't be allowed to do that anyway. So, but you know, but really it's, it's, an, it's cool. It's fun. Um, it gives me, it gives me a big heavy trophy that I got to figure out what to do with, you know, every, every couple of years we move stuff around, but you know, honestly, the, the, the biggest thing that's come of it is I have to relive that fight all the damn time. <laughs> one of your shortest fights isn't widely known and is one of the great stories, the one that pitted Frank Trigg against Bruce Buffer in an elevator. Come on, Frankie, let us have it. What happened? I mean, have you ever been in an elevator? Yeah. Okay, have you ever been in an elevator with five grown men? Yeah, there, there wouldn't be a whole lot of room, would there? You've, have you ever been in an elevator that, take, go down, that goes down eight floors? Yeah. Okay, so what, what can happen in that time? No stops. It goes straight down. What can happen? Not a whole lot of and, room. And, and hold on, let me, let, me, let me let you know, one of the guys is an armed bodyguard. Oh, Dana White's armed bodyguard. So geez. now you got five guys in an elevator, one guy's armed. And he's a bodyguard for the president of the UFC. So what's going to happen in that elevator? All I can tell you is I'm wearing, I'm wearing slippers, uh, flip-flops or thongs, whatever you guys call them. I'm wearing slippers, board shorts, T-shirt. I'm with Mike Goldberg. I went up to his room to have a drink. I'm in the elevator going the way down. Dana says he wants to have me come back to the UFC. I have a conversation with him about it. Bruce interrupts the conversation. I go home. Bruce goes to the hospital. That's it. That's the whole conversation. I, love I went home. He got stitches. That's, that's all there is to it. I mean, it's not. It's not that big of a deal. If you really want to know, uh, talk to Bruce. Like he, he's got this. He's got this huge story. He loves to tell about it. It's his. It's his one saving grace. Let's be honest. No one else talks about his book. It's yeah. not that one fight. Of all the other stuff that goes on in that book, like has anybody talked about the time he's partying with Liddell with all the with all the the hot chicks, the yeah. all the all the supermodels he's always hanging out with, or the stuff he does with his brother? Like, no. The only thing they talk about in that book is this fight that. What? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, go ahead. I mean, have that. Go ahead. Yeah, whatever. Frankie, professional athletes transitioning into retirement and a different career, it's not always easy. How was it for you? So I fought Jim Wallhead. Yeah. I got homered. In my, in my opinion, I got homered. Three rounds. I won two. He won one. But they, but one referee, one judge, she gave all three rounds. I knocked him down twice in that round that I won. Like I, knocked him clear, I clearly knocked him down twice. Wow. And he gave, still gave that round. I was like, okay, I got homered. Like they, yeah. it was in his own time. Okay, whatever. It happens. Don't leave it to the judges. I should have finished them. Mm. It's not a complaint. I finished that fight. I go home. Um, I got to pay my camp fees. I got to pay, you know, mortgages and, and car fees and insurance and everything that, you know, you, that you incur. I paid everything out and I realized I'm short $2,500. So I just fought. I just lost. And I still owe $2,500. So now, mind you, I'm past my prime. So I'm not worth the money that I would need to maintain this. So mm. I'm in Hawaii. Um, I hustled some money, whatever, got that bill paid off. And then I'm in Hawaii teaching a seminar. Uh, TJ Thompson, who run, he used to run Icon, was yep. the owner I fought, Robbie Lawler and, and, and Jason Miller underneath. Um, he's like, hey, I'm robbing a bank for Hawaii 50 uh, I'm doubling a guy. Why don't you come out and watch? I'm like, will they allow me on site? He's like, yeah, come out. So I come out. Um, this, this, I thought he was Asian. This Asian guy comes up to me, starts talking to me. He knows more about my fights than I do. This round, this thing, when he did this and this fight, whatever, blah, blah. He's like, hey. This is like a Tuesday. He goes, what are you doing on a Friday? Well, on this Friday, I'm like, well, I'm supposed to go to Maui to watch my buddy, um, uh, go see my buddy Brad Penny, but I can skip it because I'm just here on vacation. I'm just screwing around. He goes, you want to work on 5-0? I'm like, I'd love to be an extra on there. I'll go, to, I'll go work on 5-0. So I show up uh, on that Friday. I come in, and I'm like, this is going to be 
a great day because I love the show. Mm. I'm in Hawaii. I got a chance to be an extra. You know, it's like a hundred and twenty five dollars a day or whatever to be on the show. It's gonna be amazing. Well, they give me a contract. It's not an extra one sheet. It's a stunt contract. So I'm like, hold on, hey guys, look, I'm not in a union. I can't do this. Like, I'm, it's gonna be. I'm gonna screw you guys up because you guys are on CBS. You're a big show. This is this is Evil Eye Production. Like, this is a big thing. I cannot be here. Right? Scotty Khan, who is uh, James Khan kid, is mm-hmm. played played Dano on the show uh, Black Belt Jiu Jitsu, and not and not a Hollywood black belt. I'll get, I'll get into him in a second. Not a Hollywood black belt. A real black belt. And I'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. Um, um, Alec O'Loughlin, the lead, uh, blue belt jiu-jitsu underneath, underneath uh, uh, Egan Enneway. Okay. Henson Enneway's brother. Yep. So the the, the, the guys I used to fight with <laughs> yeah. in Japan, it's just, I'm like, they're like, don't worry, we're going to make this happen. We're going to make this happen. I'm like, okay. So I get, it's called Taff Heart Lead, and they couldn't find anybody to do this thing that I had to do on the island. I get signed up, I get in, I'm done. So Jeff Caliente is the guy who I thought was Asian. That would that comes on and starts talking to me right away. He's Hispanic. He's from LA. He's like he used to double brand. He used to double brand Lee. Like he's a huge stunt guy. Yeah. Like an amazing works for a, a works for this company or this uh, group called Stunts Unlimited. Like the, the um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Brad Pitt's part is played by. He's actually um, being being Hal Needham, who started Stunts Unlimited. That's mm-hmm. the group that Jeff is with. Excellent. So I'm like, this is like a huge honor for me to have this guy ask me. Do a six-hour day. We have a lunch in the middle of it. I have some of the best mahi-mahi I've ever had in my entire life. I've got some of the best food. I'm at the union, because th- back then, it's not like that anymore. It was split union, non-union. There's two different two different eating areas. I'm in a union area. I'm hanging out with the leads, you know, uh, uh, um, Daniel Day Kim and Grace Park. And I'm like, this is incredible. Like, this is amazing. I go back to my to my house in my little small apartment in, uh, in Vegas. I get that check for my six hours of work. And I do the math. And I'm like, if I could work like this two days a week during fight camp, during, during an eight-week camp, so 16 days of work, not inclu- and including the fight, if I won, I still would double my money by doing this other thing. I would double my money. Wow. So why am I still trying to compete? So I never retired. I just stopped taking fights. What I did is I said, this is the number I need for me to fight, which is now not worth to have me on the card. Mm. Make sense? Yeah. Like the number I need for me to fight now is well is way over the top that you're willing to pay me to have me in this fight card because I'm not going to bring enough notoriety to the card for you to pay me this number. So that stops people from calling me. And then I'm just I'm in the stunts. And so the thing is that most guys talk about trying to find that transition, trying to find that next passion that you're going to love as much. Wake up thinking about, go to bed dreaming about, eat eat the right way, talk the right way, work out the right way for this particular thing. I found it because I found stunts. I'm getting hit by cars. I'm getting blown up. I'm getting lit on fire. I'm getting shot at. I'm, you know, I'm getting to gun work. Now I'm on this huge television show right now. It's going to start airing in, in December on Disney plus. I'm a huge character in it. Like this is a, this is like, this is a big thing. Like, yeah, I am, I am good. At, I, I make way more money than ever did fighting way more money, including the cash I got from Japan. Cause Japan is paying cash. Yeah. Like even from that, I make way more doing this than I ever did fighting. So the past was easy to jump. But I still want to stay with fighting. I still want to be around MMA. And I, and I, but I was running out of time to coach. I didn't really have stuff to do. Um, but I saw a real problem with refing, refing, and or uh, refing and judging. And John McCarthy overheard me doing an interview about how bad they suck and why they can't do anything. And he's like, "Well, come try it." I'm like, "We come try. You don't just come try refing. He goes, come take my course. Let's see how you do." So I started doing some amateur events in, in Las Vegas yeah. with Ralph Cook. And back then it was ISKA. It's moved on to something else mm-hmm. now. But I was doing stuff with him. And then we moved into to, uh, uh, 
took John's course, um, went in there with like, I just finished fighting, man. Like, I got this. I know the rules. I know the regs. I don't know. You ready? Let's get it on. I know all that stuff. Like, don't worry about it. I got it. Like, I got it. I got this. Like, don't worry about it. I failed miserably. It wow. was so bad. I had no idea what I was talking about. So when I, when I say that, hey, fighters are kind of dumb and corners need to take these courses because they really don't know what they're talking about. And, and these guys will come at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, that's not even a rule. Like, you're just making something up that you heard from somebody else five times ago. Yes. It's all made up. Like, it's because you really don't know. I've experienced it. I get it. You honestly do not have a clue what the hell's going on. You don't know. So that got me into refing. And I, now I'm like sucked into refing. I, of course, come in with, I'm going to change refing. I'm going to fix refing. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to do all these things. Not realizing that Andy Foster in California had already started doing it two years before. It's government. This is, this is commission. This is government work. Yeah. It takes forever for stuff to get through. And that was part of the problem. I thought I was going to fix everything. I'm the guy. No, you're not. You're just going to help it because you'll be part of the, the system. But I also, too, because back then, Joe and I had just, well, we had just started dating. We were dating for a little bit, uh, my wife now. And she, we had a schedule where I could leave Friday night, drive to California, ref an amateur event, drive back that night, ref Saturday in Vegas, uh, amateur event, drive back to California on Sunday, ref another amateur event, and drive back to Vegas and go to sleep. So on the week, so literally for like 10 months, every weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, if it wasn't two in Vegas, one in, one in California, two in California, one in Vegas, whatever that ratio worked out to be, wow. I was working every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, as much as I possibly could, working on being a better referee and getting my reps in. And honestly, getting yelled at by Mike Beltran, getting yelled at by Jason Herzog, getting yelled at by Mike Bell, because I'm, I'm thinking this guy's, if I was in that position, I'd be okay. So this guy must be okay. It's, that's not, I'm looking for, it's different signs. Yeah. It's, it's a different thing now. You got to look at his body language. You got to understand what's happening. So I was able to make the transition from fighting into my next, my next career because it's just as exciting. Gives me that same adrenaline dump. And it happened very luckily. I got, I'm very, I just, I backed into it somehow. This guy just started talking to me on set and all of a sudden I'm doing stunts. All of a sudden John McCarthy's like, come try this thing and see. And I suck at it. I'm like, I can't suck at this. I should be great. And then now I'm doing it. It's like, that's just, so for me, it was a little easier than most. I have a lot of friends who are ex-baseball players, ex-football players. Yeah. And some of them have been done five, six years, but they've also made, you know, $12, $13 million a year. Yeah. And they got they have so much money to do with it. They can not do stuff for a while before they can figure out the next step. I had no money. I had to figure out my next step very quickly. So I got lucky. I got lucky in that mindset. Real irony here, you and Dan Severn fought, then officiated both in the UFC. But it's not the only thing you and the Beast had in common. You had the look, you had the swagger, you had the mouth, you had that it factor as well. All the elements to be successful in professional wrestling. And you moved in that direction. Was it enjoyable? Is it something you look back on fondly or not so? Dude, so in my gym, the Raw Training Center, Real American Wrestling Training Center, that they made us change the name to R1 because WWE sued us because they had Monday Night Raw. Yeah. And even though we won the lawsuits, we couldn't afford to go on to the next level. They, you know, we didn't have 25 grand to pay the attorneys to go on to the next level to keep battling it. So they, they just battled us until we had to quit. Yeah. So, but we had ultimate professional wrestling in our, in our gym. That's where Rick Bassman's group would come train three nights a week. So after we were done with everything else, gym was pretty much closed down. They'd come in and train. So I got to see the prodigy. I got to see who's now, who's now John Cena. Yeah. I got to see some more Joe. Yeah. I got to see all these, I got to see all these guys. I got to see a shoot sting. I met sting in there. Yeah. Oh, oh, interesting story about Sting. So he comes in. I've never seen his makeup on. I've only seen him with Steve. Yeah. He's a guy 
that's super religious now and made a bunch of money in real estate. So to me, he's just this guy, real estate Steve, that knows pro wrestling. Yeah. I had no idea who the hell he is. No clue whatsoever. And I'm and I'm a pro wrestling fan of the 80s. Like, understand, like, this is this is a big thing for me. I go to TNA. I'm going to back with Kurt Angle. We're doing the back when we do it TNA. We're doing a gimmick of, you know, he'd smack up AJ. AJ would think it's him. He'd come beat me, he'd come beat me up because he thinks I'm I'm Kurt. It was that whole... Little, that little ring around we did. Yeah. And I said, I was like, Steve, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, getting ready for that. Oh, what are you doing tonight? Like, what are you doing? I didn't look. I got no idea what's going on. I got a thing I got to do with Kurt, and I'm getting hit. I'm getting stuffed, shoved in this trunk of a car and, and getting driven off in the back of a limo. I got to kick out and get out where the car is moving. I got, that's what I'm doing tonight. What are you doing? He goes, oh, you know, I'm getting ready, you know, whatever, blah, blah. He says, pretty sure. I'm like, you're staying. <laughs> like, you're staying. He just, he's like, yeah. I'm like, what the living hell? I had no idea, no clue whatsoever. Completely oblivious. You just thought he was Steve, the real estate guy, not S- Steve Borden. When he doesn't have that makeup on, no swagger, yeah, no shtick. He's not in the game. You know, when 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 like uh, um, Ke- uh, Kevin Hart. Yep. You come up to him. You start talking to him. He's immediately he's Kevin Hart. He's 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 in his role. Yeah. You talk to Kurt Angle, right? He he's in, oh he's Kurt Angle. He's in his role. You know, you better you. Know, he's in it. He's he's doing his shtick all the time. Steve, Steve takes that makeup off. He's just the guy that's going to church. He's got Bible study on Wednesday, man. He's got church on Sunday. Wow. He's going to work on some real estate deals. He's got a time for, you know, no clue. Like, there was no way. Like, I was completely blown away. Completely blown away by that. It, and so, yeah, do I look back on fondness of this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big nerd, man. Like, I love that stuff. Was, you know, and I got I got the gimmick. And I got the I got the stuff to do and the talking and the quick. And, you know, you know uh, on, uh, on uh, uh, what do they call it now? Today, bought access TV. They changed their name to Impact. Impact no. Wrestling. Yeah, Impact. So Scott Diamore was my wrestling coach. Yeah, he's he's the right. So Scotty and I are still a friend. We, we talked two days ago. Like we, we we still text each other. Like he's he's a great human being. Like this guy. Sometimes I got other stuff going on outside of athletic stuff. He's a guy. I end up sometimes for some advice. And he's like no. he's got some judgment scholar. So Moose, that's on that's on yeah. Impact now. I trained him when I was working for the Atlanta Falcons. He told me when I left, he's like, when I get out of football, I'm going to be a pro wrestler. I'm like, sure, kid. All right, whatever. Let me know when you're done. Yeah. Let me know when you're done. He calls me. I'm like, you really want to do this? I'm going to give it to Scott. Let's see what you can do. Scott, they get hooked up. Eight years later, here we are. Wow. Like, this is like, I look back on on my on my wrestling, my pro wrestling career with fondness because I actually had, for a short time I was there, I was only in it for like two and a half years, I was able to make a huge impact. Now I've got a guy that, that, I saw grow from zero to 360. I got to see John Cena go from some skinny little kid. He's getting, he was getting there. He wasn't as physical as he was now. Yeah. He was getting there as a kid. You know, now it all of a sudden be like, dude, he's a huge star. Like, geez. And now I'm doing, you know, I'm working on stuff now. I see pro wrestlers, older pro wrestlers that have moved on, you know, into different stuff. I get to work with them sometimes on different projects like Batista and those cats. You're like, dude, like, this is, this completely switched out, man. Like, and, and, you know, you get to see The Rock when he's shooting Jumanji in Hawaii. And yeah. you're like, oh, this is a whole thing. Like, this is a, you understand, man, like the people's eyebrow, I was doing the people's eyebrow before you were, but he made it famous. Like, <laughs> this is a thing. And it's like, you know, so yeah, you look back on it with fondness. That's great. You know, but the thing is, is that it's a live stunt show. Yeah. Pro wrestling. You know, you know the outcome. Those guys, I'm sorry if I'm breaking it for some of you guys at home, you know, <laughs> they know the outcome when they walk out there to the cage, get out of the ring. They, they know what's going to happen with the, the briefcase. They know what's happening with the ladder. They know what's, they know what's going to happen. But they are really taking those hits. They're really taking those bumps. They're really getting thrown off the top rope. They're really jumping off the cage. Mankind really fell through, landed on those tacks and broke his teeth. Like, it's a live stunt show. Those guys are wrecked. Like, a lot of those guys, man, I have a lot of admiration for them because they get beat up. And to be honest with you, the majority of them make no money. And you see them on TV yeah. and you see them work and you see them perform and they're on, they're on the, and they're on contract. 
but they're not making any money, man. It's, and it's a difficult, difficult. It's really like professional golf. You get invited, you pay your own way, you get your own hotel, you pay your own per diem, you got to shack up with other people to keep the cost down, you got to go in on 50-50 on the car, on the rental cars, you can get around, and then you make a couple bucks. And this is, it's really, pro wrestling is really a labor of love, and anybody that is doing it, I have so much admiration for them, because there is no pay in the very beginning. You are literally doing it for, I've seen guys going and be like, I, I just, there's, there's a manager here that, that I want him to pick me up, like a real legit manager, like a real manager, I want him to pick me up. I got to get on this thing. And the promoter goes, I got a guy, I got to look at the back. Why don't you guys work something out? And if you just want to go do it, like, like third in, give me, give me six minutes. And I'm like, oh, great. What, you know, what's the pay going to be like? Like, pay. Like, what's the pay? <laughs> they're just doing it. There's managers in the crowd. They're hoping. They're hoping the guy's going to show up and be there on time. It's like, stuff like that, man. It's real, it's real hard work. But when you make it, when you do it, you do it well. And you got that, got that, that pizzazz, man, you can take over the world. A wonderful career in front of the cameras both in the ring and on the big screen. You've always been legitimate, very personable, and the journey is only halfway done. UFC Hall of Famer, proud father of four, and also the personal achievement of using Jason Miller's head as a soccer ball. Frankie Trigg, it has been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>